This is Give Me Some Truth. This podcast features appearances from Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and myself, Mitch DeWitt, from Walkner Condon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin. Give Me Some Truth is dedicated to providing an accessible and authentic view into the financial services industry, as well as current events and investment concepts that you can apply in your day-to-day life. Here are your hosts. Give me some truth. We have two of us in the booth here today, and it's myself, Mitch DeWitt, and Clint Walkner. And we're going to be talking a little bit about a recent trip that Clint made to New York, New York City specifically. Spent some time in the financial district there. And Clint, could you tell us where you actually were and just give us a little bit of background about this trip to New York? Yeah, so I went to the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, ETF symposium, and so uh, exchange-traded funds are a uh, an investment that we use a lot in our firm. Um, they're a type of uh, fund, so you have mutual funds and you have ETFs, and then you know you have your individual stocks and individual bonds. So it's just kind of one sort of flavoring of investment that we use. Our firm has uh, chosen to use a significant amount of those in clients' accounts. In many cases, it's a hundred percent. So. Um, JP Morgan held a summit and really they were just trying to educate us on where the uh, ETF industry is going and brought in a bunch of speakers, uh, which was great. It was a time well spent out of the office. Um, you know, for all of us, I, I think, and I, I speak for all of us, I think when I say this, that uh, when you get out of the office, it's really the time when you can help grow yourself, um, improve your knowledge, and be able to think uh, creatively about our business. And, uh, you know, it just happened to be in New York. Uh, I was in Midtown. Um, so I didn't really know, like, all the... I don't know all the neighborhoods and the boroughs and things like that, but I, I did the Midtown thing. Um, and then my wife and I, um, we were leaving later in the afternoon um, on last Wednesday. And so uh, we stayed and went down to Wall Street and got to walk around that and got to see where the New York Stock Exchange was. And, uh, you know, that was that was really cool as well because I had never been down in that area. And uh, it just... Uh, it's really interesting when you walk down and think about it and, and you think about the context of where we're at and how people view f- the financial industry in general. And then you see these huge ent- institutions and it's really kind of mind blowing when you see it like, hey, that's the actual J.P. Morgan office that I went to dressed up in a suit and tie, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, it, it was cool. It was really fun. That sounds like a slightly different vibe than Monroe and Glenway here in Madison. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, you see a lot of people in suits there. It's different from here. It's a little bit more buttoned up. Um, but a even different we, energy. It's definitely a different energy. I mean, I, it goes a little fast for me. I'm not a New Yorker, but I really enjoyed uh, being in the city. And there's obviously a lot to do. And you know, we were only there for a couple of days. And uh, you know, I was fortunate to be able to bring Courtney, my wife, uh, with me, and we had a great time. And you know, we went to a comedy club and. Um, you know, we, we ate at a couple of really nice places, um, you know, not like uber expensive, but pretty nice places that, uh, had good food and good reviews. And, you know, we had a great time. And it sounds like you, you learned a lot, right? You, you went there with the intention of going to this ETF contra- conference with JP Morgan. And so you did a lot of good things. You enjoyed the time in, 
in New York, but there's really some things that we want to share with, with our listeners and our clients as well and, and try to just explain further into, hey, what are these ETFs? Why do we use them in our portfolios? What did you learn from some of the, the very top of the top management at J.P. Morgan? And... Oh, it sounds like you're going to say something. I was, uh, yeah. I mean, I got to see Jamie Dimon speak, uh, which, I mean, for me to be able to see that was really the reason, one of the reasons for the trip. Trip. I originally saw the uh, agenda, and I was like, oh, Jamie Dimon's actually going to speak to us. I mean, that's he's one of the top three or four financial minds in the industry, and so he's the CEO. Um, I think he's got a you know, a few different titles: CEO, President, etc. of J.P. Morgan. Um, but he is the guy. And I don't know how long, much longer he's going to be there, uh, but you know he is just uh, an incredible mind. And so to see him in the flesh, um, there was only about 150 advisors in the room. So being able to see him, he took some questions from the audience, and uh, you know he kind of laid out the vision for J.P. Morgan. But one thing that he said was, and it's hard. It's, you don't expect CEOs to say things like this. He says, "I made a mistake on ETFs," and he said, uh, I, "We were not in the industry." right away we were getting caught up and we made a mistake in not being there um so they didn't see etfs being a big portion of their business and now they're they're all in so it's it's very interesting seeing a major ceo say a major line of business that they just got wrong and uh now they now they're uh, full-fledged in it but and and for the the audience when we're talking about the difference between exchange traded funds and mutual funds typically i think it's People say, oh, it's an exchange-traded fund, it's it's based on an index, it's kind of passively managed, versus the mutual fund where we see more active portfolio management teams, active management about what's actually in the fund. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, if you think about what an index is, um, just in general, um, an index is a group of stocks or a group of bonds to be representative of something. So if you said, okay, I want to represent large U.S. companies, you would design an index to represent large U.S. companies. It could be like, okay, we're going to choose the 500 largest in market capitalization. And that's... Sounds like the S&P. That sounds a lot like the S&P. Or 30 industrial uh, stocks together. Sounds Uh, like the Dow Jones. Dow Jones. Uh, But, you know, which which the Dow Jones is interesting because it's a lot more diverse than just... uh, just those industrials, you know, it's the Dow Jones Industrial Index, and it's not really that at all anymore. Um, so basically what you have to do is you go to these providers, and they help you design these indexes that are supposed to be representative of a certain sample. So it could be technology companies. Um, it could be international companies or emerging markets or bonds, and you could be the aggregate bond index just tries to show, okay, these are all the bonds in the industry, and this is representative. This is a representative sample of what the bond um, you know, market is doing on a regular basis. And because treasuries have become larger and larger, that index, the aggregate bond index, is actually becoming more and more represented by uh, government debt. So, you know, there's, they kind of ebb and flow and change a bit once these rules are no longer in, once these rules are applied to these companies. So some might fall out of the S&P 500 because they're no longer the 500 largest companies. And some have tried to start to improve on these indexes. And uh, what happened is, you know, is is the S&P 500 the best index to look at when you're investing? Because, you know, just because a company is big means that you put more money into those companies. So, for example, Apple, you know, one of the largest S&P 500 holdings there. And the larger it gets, the more you actually hold in the S&P 500. So that's kind of an arbitrary rule. So, you know, a lot of people have spent a lot of time and money redesigning newer indexes and 
part of this sort of rules-based uh, index building has birthed out these products, these ETF products. And now there are different ways that they're being designed to better rank companies um, and use a representative index that's also improved on certain metrics. So it could be you know, price to sales or momentum, or it could be um, you know, size of company or um, value versus growth, and it all could be ranked in a certain way. And that's how these ETF uh, products are now being developed. And so we're seeing this, you've got indexes, which are like, okay, I want a small cap US index. Okay, great. You know, you've got the Russell 2000 index that's might be representative of that. Well, now they're going into and, and tweaking these indexes. And that's where you see this sort of quasi passively managed index, this, these kind of passively developed indexes that we now call smart beta. Um, you know, that's and, and most of the people around the ETF industry hate the term smart beta, um, but basically the, the, they wanted to improve indexes by using certain metrics in there. And so they've developed these sorts of, and they're calling them factor investing now as well. Um, and that's kind of the newest buzzword instead of calling it smart beta, um, which, you know, the passively managed things like S&P 500, things like that, that are not as intricately rules-based. Now that's supposed to be known as what, dumb beta? So I think they've moved to, to calling it now factor investing um, versus something that, that doesn't, you know, basically every index that's developed uses certain factors. It's just a matter of what factors those are. So there really is kind of a, a hybrid approach now. There's a middle ground, right? Because I think a lot of people think you're active, you're trying to beat some sort of benchmark or you're passive where you're just trying to track whatever benchmark that is, some of the ones that you discussed earlier. So it sounds like there really is a crossover. There's kind of a hybrid. These rules are getting baked into the process as well. Now, does where's JP Morgan's stance on that? It sounds like they're probably embracing the SNARP beta or the factor base a little bit more. They definitely are. They're big into the factor investing now. Um, and they kind of said, okay, there's, there's two different ways you can do factor investing. You can pick single factors and you can try to beat the market by utilizing those single factors. So I'm going to buy um, this factor-based uh, investment ETF that looks at momentum, say. So, you know, basically, it's kind of like that snowball going down the hill um, and picking up and becoming larger and larger as it kind of goes down that hill. Um, that's kind of momentum investing. And so there are periods of time where momentum investing is very much in favor. Usually those are growth-oriented companies, and uh, usually those are companies that um, you know tend to do well in these kind of up-market cycles. Well, you might want that in your portfolio for a shorter period of time. Now that is a little bit more of a, a trading strategy, um, and so you know you might be in it for a little while and then out of it, or you're you're building around the S and P 500, highlighting okay, I'm going to highlight value, or I'm going to highlight momentum, and I'm going to build that as part of my investment mix just to pick a couple select factors due to where we are in the cycle of investing. Now, the other ones that are being developed that, um, and personally, this is where I think philosophically our firm will likely be, um, we, because we've used this in the past and we probably will, it's multi-factor uh, investing. So they take about the four or five most common factors and they package them into one index product um, that we would purchase. And I think that's probably the better way if you're looking at long-term investing and being a little more agnostic to the cycle. Uh, you're picking multi-factor sorts of uh, package products. And J.P. Morgan has those. And J.P. Morgan also has uh, what they call their, I think they're like beta builders or something like that. Um, but basically, they've developed their own indexes that are really inexpensive too. And they're part of this whole race to zero in those indexes um, in expense ratio. So uh, you know, they're going to 
be, offer that as as part of their suite to be able to compete as well because um, you know everybody needs to have some real standard indexes as well in their lineup um, just because it's it's easy to get in and out of them and they're tax efficient. Race to zero. That was one thing I noticed there. So race to zero for those that might not know, and it's relative to expense ratios, like Clint said, and we're seeing compression in fees, right? And expense ratios are, are basically what you're paying inside of an ETF or a mutual fund. And we're seeing these fees go down and down and down. And they might be nine basis points or basically 0.09% of your fund might be pulled out. That's definitely a lower cost fund. Now, there are mutual funds out there that are still a percent plus. I mean, in some of your 401ks, there might be 1.3% expense ratio. I don't know what it might be, but we're seeing the industry as a whole, as you said, kind of race to zero, right? And, and Fidelity has actually come out with a couple different funds now that they're advertising as, hey, there is no expense ratio on these funds. What is, did JP Morgan address anything about that in their conference? What are their opinions? And furthermore, Clint, what's your stance on, on how sustainable that, that might be? Yeah, they, they, they hit that head on in the conference. I thought it was, it was great. And I would say the, the overlying theme in the conference, uh, they said it probably 25, 30 times. They kept talking about the and hopefully I'll get the word right because, you know, but the democratization of uh, investments and what that means for the end user. And so now investors now have unparalleled access to investments that, you know, used to not be available. They used to be all on the um, developed on the institutional level. And now they're all being developed for the personal investors. We've never had as much choice as we've had now. We've never had it at a lower cost, um, So, you know, both from the expense ratio side and from the trading cost side. So, uh, you know, they were really uh, big on, you know, saying, hey, this is the best time that you ever could be an investor. Now, you've got to wade through all those funds. I mean, there's a ton of funds. Um, and ETFs have exploded. And then you add that to the mutual funds, too. I mean, it is just an incredible industry right now uh, to be part of. And, you know, I think that people... Uh, you know, say, oh, just just go buy an index fund and you're going to be fine. And you're like, yeah, what index fund? I mean, there's so many different indexes that you can use now. Um, and so I, I think people get fixated on the S&P 500 and the, you know, Barclays aggregate bond or something like that. And uh, man, it's it's a great time to be an investor. Uh, but they did say a couple things. I mean, yes, there will be more of these sort of uh, zero fee products, but then they're not going to all take the whole market. They will be the, the easiest ones to develop, and they're just trying to generate assets into those. Um, and then, really, these financial companies are going to cross-sell to those people, trying to make them go upstream to get a financial advisor inside of the organization. Fidelity you know, wants them to buy maybe annuities. Um, so they're going to cross-sell a bunch of different product lines to these clients that are utilizing these funds. So, I mean, nothing is, is free. Um, in our industry, so that the cost of it will be okay. You're going to get marketed to heavily, and uh, you know, be pitched to, and and in some cases, it might be exactly what the client needs. You know, they may need some banking service, so they may, you know, I think these algorithms algorithms are going to get better and better, and I think that they're actually going to be able to fulfill needs at a good price. And this thing is probably all good for everybody, um, but uh, you know, those investment companies are going to have to figure out 
what they want to compete on and what don't they want to compete on. And, you know, they talked about securities lending and stuff like that. Those are ways that they make money. Um, securities lending, they said, is very overrated as far as a revenue source. It's a it's a minuscule amount. So uh, that's not going to be a big boon for these companies if they go to zero with their expense ratios. And furthermore, um, with the zero fee products, um, you know, some of the like Schwab it will make you keep a certain amount in cash and they actually make money on the cash assets. That's a significant part of the revenue where basically you're sitting out of the market and earning below market returns in a slice of your pie and they're generating revenue from that. So there are certain nuances that these companies can apply um, to their investment philosophies, uh, even if they're offering certain things at zero to still make money. Yeah, the revenue has to come from somewhere, right? Because people think, wow, how, how do you make money? And it is some of that cross-selling, cross-product type of environment where, hey, get them in at, let's say, Fidelity, right? We got them. They're using our funds. There's there's already a, a very well-known recognition around Fidelity in the industry, but get them in and then, hey, here are the other services that they have to offer. Because revenue has to come from somewhere, as I learned in business school. And if it's not from the fund itself, there's going to be other things. So Yeah, they're not running nonprofits there, are they? I don't think so. Yeah, right. Last I checked, no. They're, yeah. they're in it to make money. Yeah, pretty much everybody is now. So, you know, there, there used to be a couple nonprofits, and even those don't exist anymore. I mean, it's, and, and you ask the question of what I feel about it, and I think, I think it's great for investors. And as an investment advisor, I want to give our clients as much choice as possible. And so, you know, while we're never going to take out conflicts of interest in our industry uh, 100%, uh, you know, we're trying to minimize them as much as possible. So, you know, we don't receive anything from any of the mutual fund companies or ETF providers that we, we utilize as far as they don't pay us any fees or commissions or anything like that. Um, I guess the conflict of interest would be, I mean, for full disclosure, you go, okay, well, you know, JP Morgan flew me out uh, to the conference and they put me up in a hotel room and they fed me uh, for one of the nights, one of the days. Uh, I actually didn't attend that dinner, but, uh, you know, you, you could have a dinner there. I had a couple lunches there, you know, and they highlighted their funds and you know are we going to use a jp morgan fund going forward probably you know and they they ended up you know showcasing a couple funds that i really like um you know i like their mission i I thought they did a very good job presenting everything is that a conflict well yeah i guess that's that is a conflict right i mean yeah and and part of it is i'm saying yes yes that could be a conflict right but part of it too is you are doing your due diligence right Right, that's that's all part of it as well. So before just wildly throwing clients into these new funds that we don't know about, right? Part of that is is doing that due diligence to make sure that it's a fit. Right, and no, and it's not that I can't pick something from some other company. You know, am I more likely to to pick a J.P. Morgan fund now? Well, yeah, probably, but um, it's not that we don't do screens on all these other funds too and give a look at it. And if there's a fund from Index IQ as a provider, and I haven't seen a wholesaler and I haven't gone to anything, uh, you know, we can still pick those funds, and sometimes we do. Um, it's just a matter of it's got to be the right fit for our clients. So, you exactly. know, I don't have to have a nice steak dinner or anything like that in order for me to put somebody's money in funds. I mean, we ju- we're just trying to pick the best funds for our clients. Correct. There's a couple more things that we want to hit on throughout this podcast, and there's I don't know which one to go with first. Should I should I go with Jamie Dimon or should I go into some <laughs> diversity in the industry? Well, let's go to the diversity in the industry because I thought that was really interesting. Okay, okay. So Clint and I were talking a little bit before stepping in the booth here. And women in the industry, what were some of the things that you learned and specifically to ETFs even that you said were, were kind of interesting to me? So could you inform a little bit about the audience, women in the industry? What are we seeing? How does that relate to different types of funds? What does that look like? Well, I'll, t- I'll take you into... Um, 
into the room that I was in. I mean, you talk about no diversity. I, I was, again, at, at 42 years old, one of the younger people in the room, which this has been no change for me uh, since I began in 2001. I was always the youngest person in the room. Now I'm no longer the youngest person, but I am among the youngest in the room. And our industry lacks that sort of uh, you know younger investor, or younger advisor, and boy, I hope that our industry can solve that at some point. But um, and then you looked in the room, and it was all white males, pretty much. I mean, that's just how it was, uh, you know. So it, it was very interesting when a lot of the conference they had a lot of women speaking. Uh, they had a, a female MC. Uh, they had a woman, uh, a panel about women in ETF investing, and they said that ETF investing is proliferated by a lot of uh, women that are running a lot of these ETF initiatives. And they kind of said, why is that? Well, she said it was it was kind of a couple different reasons, but one of the main reasons was they had this cute little ETF project, you know, at, at the JP Morgan thing. And so they just said, okay, well, why don't, why don't you take it? And they just assigned it to um, this woman, I think, thinking that it was just kind of a, you know, she was posing it as, they just kind of threw it in her hands because it was just going to be a small initiative and no big deal. And now she said, um, the best comment of the whole like conference was like, yeah, that now they're going to, you know, pull it out of my, uh, cold dead hands, you know? So, <laughs> so she, she is running the whole thing at, uh, JP Morgan and she's, she is awesome. She was a great ETF, uh, mind and, and she was up with others and they said, well, why else are women involved more intimately in the ETF part of this industry? And they said, it's younger. Um, this whole industry was birthed about 30 years ago, and really the uh, adoption of these has been the last 10 years. And they were involved in a lot of it in the beginning, and so therefore they kind of own it. And uh, you know, ETFs are very uh, you know female focused as far as the industry goes, and who got assigned to these projects. So, you know, for uh, the better of the industry, I think. Um, and there's there's even a group that's. Uh, a women in ETFs group uh, that so all these women in the industry are kind of banding together in that. So I, I think that it was really positive to see that sort of diversity and that message. That's awesome. That's great yeah. to see. And and talking with Hannah, you guys probably remember our intern we had this past summer. Talking with Hannah, still in her class, they're they're still just trying to get more people into the programs at the the bachelor type level, the bachelor's degree type level to to get into the industry. So it's it's really interesting to hear that from JP Morgan as well. Yeah, for anybody listening, if you're a, a female advisor or no one, um, you know, we'd be very willing to talk to them as far as joining our firm because uh, you know, we we look for diversity all the time and it's so difficult to find it, uh, especially in the Madison area. There are very few uh, female advisors. Um, you know, obviously we'd look for somebody that's the right fit culture-wise and otherwise, but I mean, boy, they are, you know, if you know of somebody, please uh, send her our way because uh, we're always looking. A couple minutes here, and we're in the middle, or I probably shouldn't say the middle. <laughs> we are we're maybe towards the end-ish, I would guess, of a nine-year bull run. If we're in the middle of a bull run, Clint, that would be... Oh, That'd be so great. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine what <laughs> another nine years of this w- would look like. But we, we're probably towards the end of this bull run, nine years plus going strong. Jamie Dimon was right there in the thick of things for big banks right in the Great Recession, 2008, right? Too big to fail. He was there for all of it. And he's actually one of the very few remaining CEOs that were around pre-financial crisis, through financial crisis, and still leading their firm. So with him being in that role, what was his 
thoughts on just where we are at the economy, what this looks like over the next handful of years. Was there anything that he had that was we're sharing with our audience here in the last couple minutes of the podcast? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and to go back on uh, who Jamie Dimon is as a person, I mean, he's he's pretty much a lifelong uh, Democrat, which you you don't see often. Uh, as far as CEOs of major financial services companies. And, you know, I think the thing that I took away most from the whole conference and after I saw him was that I think we need to stop uh, banging on the banks so much about how evil the banks are and how conflicted, conflicted they are, you know. I, you know, and I'm a victim of this too. And I think part of it is where we live. Uh, part of it is the politics around us. Part of it is, um, you know, who to blame for the 2008 crisis. But really, you know, what he said was it was a, a credit um, problem that they had. There was, there was certainly leverage in the system. Right now, he said, there isn't that type of leverage. He said that all these financial institutions are much healthier than they were in 2008. And he said, you know, he can't see us going into any sort of major great recession sorts of uh, situations. Uh, J.P. Morgan believed in general when we did see the next recession, it would be fairly mild comparative to, um, you know, 2008, 2009. Uh, but he was, he, you know, I think that my takeaway was just that uh, we have a lot of great financial institutions that have lent money to people uh, that would not have been able to just do it on their own. I could not go buy it my house without having a loan from Capital One at the time. And, and you know, there's all these financial institutions willing to give people money uh, to be able to reach their financial goals and dreams. And then a lot of them are also assisting people and uh, helping them invest. And whether it is a big wirehouse, uh, you know, whether it's a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch or, or Baird or whether it's, a, you know, Edward Jones or a Mass Mutual or all these, there's all kinds of different companies out there. And I think it's it's really um, kind of almost fashionable for people to bash these companies. Um, we don't like every strategy. We don't like every compensation structure. But there are a lot of good people out there helping people invest money um, and are willing to lend them money as well where appropriate. And, it, and I think we need to all just kind of maybe take a moment and appreciate uh, what all of those financial services companies have done for our economy. Uh, and you know what? It, right now, they are a lot healthier than they were in the past. Um, and there's just not that, like he said, there's not that leverage in the system. So that was my big takeaway is that I, I came away with a lot of pride in our financial uh, system and situation that we have here in this country. And, and I hope that people might Make 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 it, look at it a little different lens. You know, I, I think that these these companies are all so good at what they do, and uh, you know, it, it's so easy to just bash them and say, "Oh, they're part of the part of the problem." I actually think they're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Clint, thank you for sharing your thoughts and what you learned from your trip to New York, visiting J.P. Morgan, and for those that listen out there, we appreciate you tuning in. As always, let us know if you have any thoughts, ideas, things you want to hear on a podcast, blog, etc. Thank you for tuning in to Give Me Some Truth. We will see you next time. You gotta leave your money behind you. Raise your hand to the sky. Ask the masses for silence. Look on dead in the eye.
Advisory services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the states of Wisconsin and Texas. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and Mitch DeWitt are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not be providing any advice that is investment-related, nor should any comments that guests make should be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.